Hello, and welcome to Scanner Day's Let's Talk AI podcast, where you can hear from AI researchers about what's actually going on with AI and what are just clickbait headlines. This week, we'll look at bias, disinformation, and hype in AI, and talk about yet more stories about coronavirus and AI. You can find the articles we discuss here today and subscribe to our weekly newsletter with similar ones at skynetoday.com. I am Andrei Kurnikov, a third-year PhD student at the Stanford Vision and Learning Lab. I focus mostly on learning algorithms for robotic manipulation. And with me is my co-host. I'm Sharon, a third-year PhD student in the machine learning group here working with Andrew Ng. I do research on generative models, improving generalization of neural networks, and applying machine learning to tackling the climate crisis. All right, Sharon, we are now in the third week of shelter in place here in the Bay Area. Uh, feels like this past month has been, you know, several months at least, maybe a year. <laughs> Absolutely. Time is moving really slowly. Yeah, it's it's very surreal. Uh, how have you been adjusting to this new reality? I think I've actually passed my peak anxiety point. So this is the new normal quarantine. Um, I have also been thinking about, you know, how can we help mitigate some of these effects as we see other countries that are, you know, a few weeks or months ahead of us. Uh, it's a little bit ominous to think about, but how do we make sure we either don't get into their situation or that we step in their, into their shoes and follow their, their footsteps? Yeah, I think it's kind of where we are as a country are to some extent, where we are finally at the point of sort of understanding the scale of this thing and just uh, coming to accept that things are going to be strange and different for a while, <laughs> which in a way makes it uh, easier to get used to it. Um, but I guess for now, we'll try to talk about some AI news to distract ourselves from all this virus stuff and just focus on the things we find interesting. Uh, so to get going, our first set of articles will be on issues with AI, which will include bias, disinformation, and flaws of our current techniques. The first piece we'll discuss is titled, There is a racial divide in speech recognition systems, researchers say, and it was released in the New York Times. And so we're already aware of bias, racial and otherwise, that pervades AI systems being trained and deployed today. But this is going to be a very specific area of speech recognition systems uh, that the New York Times has pointed out. Interestingly, the disparate treatment different groups receive from AI systems even extends to speech. So speech recognition systems from five of the world's biggest tech companies, including Amazon, Apple, Google, IBM, and Microsoft, make far fewer errors with users who are white than users who are black, according to a study published on Monday in the Journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, or PNAS. Um, so this includes uh, our Amazon Echo, Alexa. Uh, this includes Siri, this okay, includes OK Google, IBM Watson, Microsoft Cortana. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, to get into a little more detail, uh, there's a quote from a study that says that the systems misidentified words about 90% of the time with white people, but with black people, mistakes jumped to 35%. So a huge difference. 
And interestingly, this was also shown before a few years ago for facial recognition systems. So the same cloud companies, Amazon, IBM, Microsoft, also had the same problem already, and they've already mitigated that for their vision AI systems, but still have the same problem with the speech recognition systems. And relatedly, separate tests have also uncovered both sexist and racist behavior in chatbots, translation services, and other systems designed to process and mimic the written and spoken language. And the cause of a lot of this is the bias in data. Um, So the bias um, in essentially all the data that we're training our AI systems on, as well as potentially bias in the creators of the AI systems themselves. Uh, In fact, the Stanford study indicated that leading speech recognition systems could be flawed because companies are training the technology on data that is not as diverse as it could be. They're learning their task mostly from white people and relatively few black people. Um, And it's interesting to also recognize that it's not just uh, gathering that gathering the right data is difficult. It's that these companies might not have the motivation or incentives to do so unless we push for it. Uh, And also another very, very important problem that the article points out is that the companies actually face a chicken and egg problem. If their services are used mostly by white people, they'll have trouble gathering data that serve black people And if they have trouble gathering this data, the services will continue to be used mostly by white people. And it becomes this positive feedback loop that could be pretty terrible, especially with a lack of awareness. So I'm glad that this paper has come out to state these uh, biases in speech recognition. Yeah, this is a fairly high profile article. It is in in the New York Times. And it does showcase that... um, If not thought through carefully, if you don't actually make an intentional choice in making your AI system work well for not just the average case, but uh, different groups, different populations, um, yeah, different types of people, you might get into this sort of issue. Um, I think here in particular, we can think of uh, there's different minority groups with different accents, right? And so even if you do get enough data and you think to include different groups, if you don't train your models carefully, just because there's fewer of people of a certain type, the model will be worse for uh, those types of people. So you really need to be careful. And this goes beyond research. This is deployment of these AI systems that are touching people right now, today, yesterday, and tomorrow. Uh, Because in research, oftentimes our data sets are very biased uh, because these are like the only data sets that we've been able to collect. And this is a huge problem in research. And then now it's being seen in deployment in the real world. So it's actually pretty bad that this trickles uh, into real world data sets as well. Yeah, it's it's been interesting. We discussed a little bit uh, an episode or two ago about how uh, the conference Neurips has requested offers to include a statement of impact. And um, the thinking there was precisely for this kind of scenario, where when you create an algorithm, you actually need to lay out all the potential problems when you deploy, deploy it out in, into the real world. And you need to be mindful of many different things. So us as researchers, we need to be better about communicating the various things that need to be accounted for 
when you develop a product and people who want to develop products or start companies need to really start keeping track of things like this because if a giant companies uh, are getting it wrong when someone starting from scratch uh, has I think even a harder time uh, making sure to avoid things like this. On the flip side, potentially this could maybe have a silver lining of protecting the privacy of those whose voices cannot be picked up on by these systems. Uh, that's something I do wonder about, whether or not this might be able to protect privacy or whether this will actually exacerbate a lot of other situations. Uh, it's something I have wondered about. I don't know if you have thoughts on that, Andre. Yeah, it's it's a tricky thing. I think the ideal world, right, would be where it works perfectly for everyone but everyone can opt out if they want, right? So right now, many people are starting to be worried about having a Siri or a Google Home uh, when you're visiting someone and it's just listening to you and picking up your voice in the background. Ideally, the whole kind of field needs to evolve to be able to deal both with privacy and with performance at the same time. But it is challenging. But I think luckily, uh, I don't know about you, Sharon, in my research, I don't have to work with people quite yet. I work with robots and train them in a simulation. So um, at least I can uh, kind of rest easy and not worry about these things for now. I think I get to think about humans a little bit more. <laughs> Which brings us to our next article, Research Summary, The Deep Fake Detection Challenge, Insights and Recommendations for AI and Media Integrity. And this is a summary of a paper put out by the Partnership on AI on the Deep Fake Detection Challenge. So in an increasingly automated world, we'll see further use of deep fake technology to push malicious content onto people. And the Deep Fake Detection Challenge is meant to surface effective technical solutions to mitigate this problem. And deep fakes are essentially uh, synthetic media. So any media that is generated by an AI system or that is synthesized. So there was an Obama deep fake sometime previously, as well as a Mark Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg deepfake. Uh, so basically a, a fake talking head of Obama and Mark Zuckerberg that seemed real, uh, making statements that they did not say. And so this is really troubling for media integrity. The mere existence of deepfakes causes a lot of trust in the media as fake news. And the partnership on AI, uh, using their AI media integrity team, has compiled um, a helpful list of recommendations to improve this deepfake detection challenge that was put out by Facebook. But the lessons also widely apply to any others doing work in this space. Yes, yeah, so these recommendations come from uh, the AI and Media Integrity Steering Committee, which has representatives from nine uh, partnership on AI partner organizations, which actually span civil society, media, and technology. So that includes Amazon, but also the BBC, uh, the BBC CBC Radio Canada, Facebook, Microsoft, New York Times, uh, Witness. So kind of a mix of tech, uh, media, and civil society, which is uh, pretty uh, pretty good, actually. The recommendations of this report are a little bit nuanced. So they're not just saying we need better detection. We're not just saying we need better algorithms to know whether something is a defect or not, because you just end up in an arms race between detection and evasion. Uh, so their claim is uh, that detection needs to be paired with existing techniques that fact checkers and journalists already use in determining whether something is a, 
authentic or synthesized. I think something that is also really striking uh, for me from this article is that uh, the prize money for this challenge, some of it will be allocated towards making better design from a user experience and user interface perspective. Uh, so this includes explainability criteria so that non-technical users are able to make sense of these interventions, as well as highlights of fake content, such as bounding boxes around regions of manipulations. So this is very much focused on how usable and how useful to the public this kind of tool will be as an entire package, not just fully on a detection, not fully just running an algorithm on detection. Yeah, it's it that is interesting, uh, and it relates to a point uh, made here as well, which is that in addition to deepfakes, really fancy deepfakes that you've seen with AI, that for instance, you know, mimic someone's voice or actually create a video, you can also have disinformation that's very simple. So there was an example where a video of uh, the politician Nancy Pelosi was slowed down a little bit to make her seem like she was slurring her words and was a bit drunk. So that's very simple. There's no AI involved. You're just slowing down a video, but that is still uh type of misinformation. So the combination here is you don't just want fancy techniques to deal with these really advanced, complex AI deepfakes. You want to have a kind of suite of tools that fact checkers and journalists can use for different types of misinformation, including these simpler ones. So a lot of my research actually is focused on evaluating generative models. And generative models are a class of AI models that essentially contribute to building deep fakes. Uh, so I have thought quite a bit about this, both within my research as well as uh, or in, within the field broadly. And people have approached me asking, you know, oh, now we can create all these deep fakes. Um, this is so different from before. And something that does strike me is that I think the major difference right now with these deep fakes is the democratization of this technology. It's that it's easier for an individual to build and create this technology than it was before. Because before it was still possible using graphics technology, using really good Photoshop, but you would need someone who is an expert. Now you can have someone who is much less of an expert be able to do this. And that encourages and increases malicious use as well as makes it very difficult to uh, prevent. Yeah, so I think uh, this is often brought up in discussions uh, that at the first time you see a deep fake, you might be concerned that, oh, wow, this is a new type of spam. We can't tell what's true or false. This is the end of truth. And uh, when you think about it a little more, you realize, oh, well, we have already had the ability to create really convincing fake videos or fake audio or fake images for a while. As you've said, we've had Photoshop, we've had uh, graphic software. It's just that now, anyone even without any advanced training advanced software can do it and so we need uh, approaches that can scale up for this ability to generate a lot of deep, uh, a lot of misleading content that is kind of convincing i think basically we need now that creating deep fakes is democratized we need a democratized mechanism to also detect and catch them and filter them I, yeah, actually, that reminds me, uh, this relates in an interesting way to the present moment, where if you log on to Twitter or Facebook, uh, they have little banners talking about being informed about the coronavirus, because um, 
I think, yeah, now is a very interesting moment in the sense of everyone is becoming informed about this issue very rapidly. There's a lot of news, a lot of opinions, a lot of articles being spread. And so it's sort of an interesting uh, test case to see uh, for misleading things, for information people really need to know, uh, how do these systems, how do these platforms handle with making sure people are informed in an accurate way? That's true. That's true. It's interesting that as information unfolds rapidly, rumors are able to build, right? Fake news is able to build much more quickly. And as a result, one of maybe the most effective ways right now is for Facebook and Twitter and some of these media platforms to just put a banner out and say that do not trust, be skeptical, do not trust everything you see because we can't catch everything, but we can try to prevent you from believing every single piece of news you do see in, in the news feed that we have presented to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this also relates to uh, several weeks ago, Twitter started rolling out their feature for flagging misleading content. And they have already done it in several cases. So as we are in this coronavirus situation and nearing the U.S. election, uh, the problem of online disinformation will only increase. And uh, we've actually already seen a case of using defakes, a really fancy AI technology uh, in uh, politics. So we've seen, uh, I believe it was an Indian politician use it for campaigning to generate deepfake videos of him speaking in different uh, dialects and languages. So it's in a very rapidly evolving situation. Uh, it's good that the partnership on AI brought together such different perspectives to do these recommendations. And I guess now that we have these recommendations, the hope is um, Facebook and Microsoft and Twitter and so on can take them into account when getting ready for the implications of this technology. And something that is also interesting is that I think a, f a week ago or so, Facebook had a bug and was catching nearly any piece of information as uh, that was posted about coronavirus as fake and tagging it as fake. And a lot of people got very upset at Facebook for this. So um, basically falsely labeling something as fake also riles up the public. So being careful about this is, is pretty important, I would say. Actually, I had a few of my posts tagged. I think it was like four or five. <laughs> and I immediately thought this must be a flawed algorithm or something thing but it was pretty amusing and we've actually seen several news articles uh, discuss how people that usually do the uh, checking who flag uh, misleading posts humans uh, now are unable to come to work as is true in many uh, industries so these companies like facebook are relying on algorithms more than they have before so they're forced to really do uh, the thing that you said of democratizing and scaling up fact-checking uh, via AI. And it is, let's say, a little buggy. <laughs> now, one thing to mention uh, in this whole discussion that might be interesting is um, it's sometimes brought up, like, why not just stop the development of deep bay technology? Why not stop developing GANs if we're going to have all this misleading content? Uh, and another thing noted in uh, this piece is that there are actually many reasons to, to develop this technology. So there are positive applications of GANs for creating art, for... Uh, 
creating animations, uh, entertaining media, many pro-social uses. And so it really needs to be a balance of sort of avoiding these potential malicious uses while still enabling the benefits of getting this technology. Given that there are positive applications of such models, uh, the article does point out the process of this multi-stakeholder input should happen at an early stage, allowing for meaningful considerations to be incorporated and data set design that can be done appropriately to counter bias and fairness problems. Yeah, as you just mentioned, bias is a thing with speech recognition and other systems, so we don't want that to be a thing here. And speaking of uh, bias and problems with our present-day AI algorithms... Our next piece here is titled A Debate Between AI Experts Shows a Battle Over the Technology's Future. And it covers a debate that happened on March 26 at the MIT Technology Review's annual MTech digital event in which Gary Marcus and Danny Lang came together how AI should evolve into the future. And Gary Marcus is quite known in the field of AI for having a strong opinion. He is a professor emeritus at NYU and the founder and CEO of Robust AI. He's a well-known critic of deep learning in particular, and his book called Rebooting AI, which was published last year, uh, argues that AI's shortcomings are inherent to uh, the very technique and that researchers must therefore look beyond deep learning uh, and combine it with classical or symbolic AI. And these are systems that encode knowledge and are capable of reasoning. And this is uh, often AI known as, uh, or, or people often think of it as more old fashioned AI. Yeah. So to take a, a bit of a step back, deep learning is at the very high level, basically this idea of you have a complicated set of parameters, so numbers that you can tweak and tune to accomplish different things. And you can get a whole bunch of data and go through an optimization process to tune these parameters or numbers and then uh, basically get a model that does what you want just based on training and optimization from the data which has resulted in uh, a lot of very impressive advances over the past decade so when you have let's say facial recognition systems when you have the speech recognition systems in something like siri or uh, google voice these are based on deep learning by now and have they have gone a lot better because of deep learning so despite the flaws of deep learning, as we heard previously with bias and deep fakes, uh, Danny Lang, who is the vice president of AI machine learning at Unity, is in the deep learning camp. And he built his career on the technique's promise and potential, having served as the head of machine learning at Uber, the general manager of Amazon Machine Learning, and a product lead at Microsoft, focused on large-scale machine learning. So he's done machine learning uh, and deep learning probably across lots of different companies that have pioneered different techniques in the space. And at Unity in particular, he now helps labs like DeepMind and OpenAI construct virtual training environments that teach their algorithms a sense of the world. Yeah, so he, he took a stance of um, 
basically saying we don't necessarily want to combine deep learning with classical techniques and to expand on that a little bit the, the idea of classical techniques is that you don't just have different numbers and parameters that you tune of data and optimization uh, but instead you do sort of hard-coded or pre-written rules for reasoning so for instance you know that something is true and something else is true and you have some sort of hand-coded logic or um, symbolic reasoning uh, techniques to then infer whether something else, some claim is true or false. So the core of the debate uh, here was Gary Marcus saying we need more than deep learning, we need to combine it with other things that aren't just dependent on data and optimization versus Danny Lang who argued that we don't necessarily want to make a claim, maybe we can just improve and fix deep learning uh, because it is quite a broad field really. And that codifying these various aspects of symbolic AI, that symbolic AI would essentially need, would be actually quite difficult. Basically, you can't codify, you can't write down as a human exactly what you are thinking and doing and what your neurons are perhaps uh, operating on. Yeah, so um, I guess to, to set the scene of why there's even this debate, Partially is because the whole field of AI or large parts of it, let's say, have converted to using largely deep learning. And there's been a lot of excitement and hype because converting to using deep learning as the main you know, family of techniques for various tasks in computer vision and speech recognition uh, in many, many domains has turned out to work very effectively. And so we have removed the, the usage of, let's say, hard-coded reasoning uh, algorithms or uh, handwritten rules or anything like that in favor of these very flexible sets of weights that we just optimize. Uh, but now that we have done that for a little while, let's say for close to a decade now, there's a lot of uh, questioning of whether we can actually move beyond the problems of deep learning, like bias when your data is problematic, uh, like generalization, uh, basically like common sense, or whether we need a fundamentally different paradigm in AI to be able to get there. What are your thoughts on this, Andre? Uh, I think it's an interesting topic. I mean, as, as is always the case with future forecasting, it's hard to say. Um, this debate has been going on for a few years now, and uh, it's sort of complicated to even set the boundaries of the claims. So um, in some cases, people agree that we need more let's say, uh, priors on how to reason and how to pay attention and how to basically uh, reason about the world. But people say we can still do this with a deep learning toolbox. We just need to think of some new tools and tricks uh, up our sleeve. Whereas our people are saying, no, you can't just do this with optimization from data. You need the symbols and so on. So personally, I'm in the camp that thinks, okay, we have the two perspectives established pretty well. Now we just need to try things and actually do the research to see what works and to start developing algorithms from different types. But I do think it's good to explore in multiple directions, of course. How about you? That sounds like a nice A-B test. <laughs> That's research, right? I mean, the whole idea Definitely. is uh, all of us do random stuff and then some some things actually turn out to be useful. <laughs> 
And for some listeners who are not at NeurIPS this year, uh, Gary Marcus uh, spoke at NeurIPS uh, for quite a few workshops, I believe, and quite a few uh, various talks. And um, they were very much well attended as there were some spicy debates there. Um, and yes, it's been a, a heated argument for a few years now. Um, I think that a lot of the work going into self-supervision is being branded as just deep learning, but I think there are actual lot, uh, there actually is quite a bit of priors being embedded into these systems. Um, in fact, I've convolutions are have uh, various priors embedded in them um, and they form the basis of the neural network architectures that are used for computer yeah, vision. It's an interesting point our field is in in some ways uh, i think we can think of it as we discovered a new very powerful hammer and we spent let's say the better part of the last decade sort of figuring out all the nails we can hit uh, with this hammer <laughs> uh, but now we've sort of started to plateau in some ways in advancing and hitting these really complicated issues of bias and um verifying that the model will always avoid some sort of catastrophic error and things like that. And um, it really just goes to show that AI isn't on some sort of runaway train to go towards human level intelligence. We still very much need a lot of new innovation, a lot of new uh, ideas, possibly even a whole new paradigm to continue making progress uh, towards the goal of really, really sophisticated AI. Yeah, and I think there are people in the camp that is even further than laying on the deep learning side who believe that not only do we want to not embed priors at all, we want our AI to learn everything from scratch. And I think there are people who really very much believe that. Um, so I think the debate spans quite a large spectrum of opinions. <laughs> Yeah, and I guess uh, let's just hope that we make progress over the next few years. Uh, people keep publishing papers and ultimately we will find, uh, let's say, whatever works uh, well next with the uh, a lot of experimentation, a lot of curiosity, a lot of basic research is what's needed now, it seems. But enough speculation about the future. Let's talk about the present. So this week, robots meet coronavirus in a few articles that we will uh, talk about. So one is in Wired. If robots steal so many jobs, why aren't they saving us now? So a lot of people have been led to believe that there will be some sort of robot revolution in which humans get entirely replaced by robots, which will be able to carry out their entire jobs. Uh, but AI roboticists uh, and researchers already know that this isn't exactly the case. Robots aren't quite there yet, certainly not with dexterity, uh, nor quite intelligence in the same way as humans. Uh, and that some people did speculate that this catastrophe with COVID-19 uh, is actually blowing up the myth of a robot takeover. Yeah. So we've just seen in the US, I think last week, that we have ridiculous unemployment numbers, right? This is a real crisis. Millions of people are going to lose their jobs. 
And the point of this article is that, um, you know, if this was true, if robots and AI was advanced enough, we could continue a lot of this work with robots who cannot be infected and, and all that. But uh, the truth is that the technology is just not there. And most of these jobs simply cannot be automated. Perhaps some of the most important jobs needed now cannot be automated, which are those in medicine. Uh, and also recently, Amazon uh, announced that they were going to hire 100,000 additional human workers to work in their fulfillment centers as delivery drivers uh, and as delivery drivers, uh, showing that not even this incredibly tech-enabled company that the leverages robotics more than most can cannot do without humans and send them off usually work alongside robot robots but the entire job still cannot be automated what's interesting is that very recently i think uh, in the last day or so uh, amazon workers have been striking uh, because they are uh, unhappy with the working conditions for people uh, right now in the in those Amazon fulfillment centers. Um, and so you definitely see that humans are definitely needed as the strike has been pretty bad on Amazon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, it's a good thing to keep in mind that uh, that as this article notes, basically this hype that all our jobs are going to be lost to AI, at least in the near term, just is not the case and it would be nice if we could actually respond to this crisis with uh replacing a lot of necessary workers and making those people safe by using robots but we cannot and that's just the case but it's also true that we can use robots in many cases and uh, we already are in response to coronavirus so the next article uh, dovetailing from that is called COVID-19 pandemic prompts more robot usage worldwide. So understandably, the COVID-19 pandemic has sparked lots of interest in robots, drones, and AI as people attempt to figure out ways to carry out various tasks remotely and while under quarantine. Um, so will this article reviews several different robots that have been uh, helping during this time and have been increasing their usage worldwide. Yeah, we've already actually talked quite a bit about different robots in prior episodes. So for instance, uh, robots in hospitals and so on. But there's uh, quite a few uh, specific interesting examples here. So for instance, just quoting from the article, uh, it says XAG has scaled up its use of ground robots with aerial drones converting agricultural units into disinfectant sprayers. The company has deployed more than 2,600 drones in China, which is said is starting to recover. To perform deliveries, Baidu has partnered with Neolix to deliver food and supplies to Beijing Haidan Hospital with the Apollo Autonomous Vehicle. So Baidu's AI algorithms are also being used to track the spread of infection. And continuing on that kind of trend of uh, varying applications of robots, there is another one here of uh, the Ham Hamilton company offering its MAGEX Starlet and PCR Prep Starlet essay ready workstations. So robots are actually being used to develop the uh, vaccine and the treatments for this crisis. 
Now, these are not necessarily autonomous robots. It's not necessarily uh, cases where there's AI involved, but these are you know physical arms and robots. And on that note of uh, many of these robots not having AI, we can move on to the next article from Wired, which is the COVID-19 pandemic is a crisis that robots were built for. And this article is about an editorial that was in Science Robotics we discussed actually in last week's episode, where uh, several uh, robotics uh, researchers and academics came together to basically say that this moment shows us that we really need to push the research and development of advanced robotics to be able to apply it in many more ways when we face a crisis like this one. What's interesting is that there's plenty of precedent for machines helping humans do their jobs, which is something that MIT roboticist Kate Darling notes. Uh, She says that ATMs allowed banks to expand teller services. So ATMs are the robots here. Bomb disposal robots let soldiers keep more distance between themselves and danger. And there are cases where automation will replace people, but the true potential of robotics is in supplementing our skills. And we should stop trying to replace and start thinking more creatively how to use our technology to achieve our goals and not put lives in danger. Yeah, and this is actually noted in particular with respect to the notion of healthcare robots. Uh, We mentioned last week, there are companies currently developing robots to deploy in hospitals to take care of some of the easier tasks and free up the time of nurses. But uh, one thing that is uh, said in this editorial is that we should really push the development of robotics for healthcare such that robots can work alongside humans and be very beneficial. And this editorial even presents the idea that maybe we should have a competition for medical robotics. So DARPA has famously had competitions for self-driving cars something like 15 years ago. And then soon afterward, we've seen a huge boom in self-driving cars. industries. They've had a competition about five years ago for disaster response, uh, which again is an application where robots are famously useful. And now we might want to have a competition for medical robotics and having robots in hospitals working alongside humans. So reading all this about robotics, I wonder, Sharon, are you jealous of us researchers who work with these systems or are you happy to uh, mostly work with data? Am I jealous? Oh, man, I would work on robotics if I could figure out how hardware works and if I had the patience to work with hardware. (laughs) Otherwise, it's software for me. Yeah, I I can say a little bit about this as a robotics researcher. I mean, the reason we are not there yet is that this is just very hard. I mean, when you're not just dealing with software, you're dealing with a physical thing. You need to move move around. You need to make sure it has power. You need to make sure it has the right version. doesn't hit anything, doesn't break. It's complicated. And so it'll take a while for us to actually build the systems. But the good news is now that we have the current crisis, it will probably push us to move faster and to really make a huge effort to uh, make progress faster than we would have otherwise. So with that, uh, thank you for listening to this week's episode of Scandal Day's Let's Talk AI podcast. Once again, you can find the articles we discussed here today and subscribe to our weekly newsletter of similar ones at skynettoday.com. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to leave us a rating if you like the show. Be, Be sure, sure to, to tune, tune in next week. week.